Boy, it's nice to be here this week and today. It's been a, a, a fun and busy week, and I've been really looking forward just to getting here. This is kind of, it's been a week of travel, so this is coming home for me. And I want to thank each of you all for being here. I had a dream last night about this class. And in my dream, um, the rock band America showed up to play <laughs> Sunday school, and I was very surprised. I was sitting down here when I realized, wow, what are they doing up there playing Sunday school? And they started playing secular music. And I thought, you know, this just really isn't what I had planned today for Sunday school. And I did work on a lesson. Um, so uh, uh, I graciously uh, uh, asked them if they would stop playing while I taught. And I got up here and there were 10 of y'all who were here. This chapel in my dream looks very empty with 10 people. I don't even think my mom was here. And I feared she'd always be, and she and Becky would be like two of the last 10. Um, and uh, uh, I, then everything, I, I just kind of moved from being concerned about the music America was playing in the Sunday school class to thinking, I hope they realize usually we have more than 10 people. And I woke up and decided I needed to um, get to work on my PowerPoint just in case more than 10 of you showed up this morning. So uh, I'm here, you're here, and I really, really deeply appreciate it this morning. It's, it's really nice. I, I saw Lewis and I knew he couldn't sing like America, so I thought the dream was not really working. So I'm glad to be here. I don't know what brought the dream on. It may be that we're talking about the holiness and Pentecostal movement because part of the passage of Scripture that comes from talks about young men will dream dreams and old men will have visions. And I would like to think that mine was a dream instead of a vision because it would (laughs) categorize me as one of the young men in that that prophetic statement. But uh, uh, today we're not quite getting into that aspect of the, the Pentecostal movement. If you have interest in Pentecostal and charismatic history... Or if you have friends that do, please come back next week because our anticipation next week is to cover the Pentecostal movement and the charismatic movement portion of this class. Today, though, we'll talk more about the holiness movement. We talk about it recognizing that there is a distinction between the holiness and the Pentecostal movement, but they're still closely related. And Pentecostalism is a a huge part of Christianity today. If we were to throw up on the screen the number of Pentecostals, there was an article in in Christianity Today in 2006 that quoted a, a, a scholar as saying, in the, ni- in the year 1900, there were a handful of Pentecostals. And there were a handful, not very many at all. The movement had just been given birth in the, in the years preceding the 19th century. But today, today, there are over 580 million Pentecostals worldwide. Think about that. 19 million are added yearly. That is 50, over 54,000 a day. Most of that growth is coming in Africa, in the Far East, and in Latin America. Some scholars predict that by the year 2025, 18 years from now, there will be 1 billion Pentecostal Christians on planet Earth. Now, not only are there that many Pentecostals, But 
Pentecostalism has influenced, the influence of Pentecostalism has spread into most every church. It spread into the Catholic church. It spread into the Protestant churches. Do we have any sound for that at all? The sound is not playing. It is on. Okay, let's see if it plays if I back it up. No. Okay, try that. You recognize this song? This song comes out of a Pentecostal church in Australia. But this is just one sample. It's Randy Travis singing it. He didn't come from the Pentecostal church in uh, Australia. He grew up in the Church of Christ Disciples Movement. I want y'all to listen to this song for just a minute because I love this song. That's a Pentecostal song. comes out of a Pentecostal church. There are tons more that we sing. That's one of my favorite songs I want played at my funeral. So I figure I might as well listen to it while I'm alive every time I get the chance. Um, The Pentecostal movement has infiltrated the Catholic church. It's infiltrated Protestant churches. It is pervasive in a lot of ways. And it's going to be interesting for us to look at it. And I really want to look at it in some detail. Because there are aspects to it that shine brightly in wonderful ways that we need to look at and appreciate and thank God for and embrace. By the same token, while there are some wonderful aspects about it that do shine brightly that I believe in embracing, there are other aspects to it that uh, cause me to break out in hives. And so uh, uh, I want to share that with you as we work through this. And I want to draw some attention to some things that I think are very important. And you will get to hear my charismatic uh, uh, perspective next week as we go through this. Uh, uh, I have spent time in my life worshiping in charismatic churches. I've spent time in my life worshiping in anti-charismatic churches and in blended churches. And I've uh, spent a lot of time uh, trying personally to come to grips with some of this. And I look forward to sharing with you some of my personal experiences next week. So I really hope you'll come back. And I'll do it very non-offensively if you want to bring any charismatic friends or non-charismatic friends, you know, whatever. But I ask you this question, where did these charismatics and Pentecostals come from? 
and that's where we'll start this morning. If we consider the Roman Catholic Church, last week we had this diagram when we broke out the Lutherans from them and the Presbyterians, that was Luther and, and Calvin, and then the Episcopal, the Church of England, the Anglicans uh, severed their relationship under King Henry VIII, and we charted from those the congregational, the pilgrims and, and independent congregations that arose out of the, the Church of England, and the Methodists that arose with John Wesley. We spent, what, three or four weeks, Dale, on the Methodists, and, and so you've got the Methodist movement as well. The Baptists, we've covered recently, they kind of swung out of the congregational movement. Now, where do we fit in the Pentecostal and the Holiness movement? Well, the Holiness movement really comes out of the Methodist church as well. And then the Pentecostals come out of the holiness movement. So that's why we've got to do the, the holiness first. Does anybody in here ever work in their gardens or flower beds? Do you agree with me that if there is such a thing as a cockroach in the garden, it's nut grass? And it's the same kind of thing. You think you got rid of it, but it just keeps coming back. I hate nut grass. Nut grass is this. And it grows with those little nuts down in the bottom. And so if you don't get the nut, you don't get the nut grass. You can pull those, those, that top part off forever, but it's just coming right back. Well, I don't mean to insinuate that we're looking at nuts today. That did not even occur to me until I'm putting this up there that I've just now said the holiness movement. They're the nuts of the nut grass. That's not what I'm saying. And... I just, uh, that totally missed my brain this morning. What I wanted to get at is, they are the root of the movement. And we can see all of the grass that's growing, but down deep in the soil, if we look at the holiness movement, we will look at the root of the movement. Let me move on from this slide. How do you edit that out? I don't know. Okay, ultimately we are one big family here, aren't we? Um, let's talk about in the holiness movement, some famous people that are in or came out of the holiness movement. I've got a few for you. Uh, for example, James Dobson, a main holiness church today that you would be familiar with is the church of the Nazarene. And that is James Dobson. Uh, not only James Dobson, uh, Bill Gaither, remember Bill Gaither and his family singers and all of that. Uh, how about this fella? You may not know him by appearance. His name is Thomas Kincaid. He is a famous painter of Christian scenes. Comes out of the holiness movement. Or how about Debbie Reynolds? Okay, now this next one uh, moved around to various different churches growing up. But while he lived with his aunt, his aunt was a Nazarene. And he says that he went to a holiness church for a good bit of time. And that's Tom Hanks. And so it's part of his upbringing, uh, though it's not an expression of faith that he adheres to today. So we're going to talk first about the holiness movement. And when you hear that, it's, I don't know how it sounds to you. Because I first studied the holiness movement, uh, for me it would have been uh, 26 or 27 years ago in school. And I, I, remi I and, and for me, the holiness movement's taken on this special meaning because it means something different in church history than it does in casual conversation. In casual conversation, if we were to open the dictionary and just look up the general meaning of holiness, which I did this morning, Oxford's dictionary puts it down as the state of being holy. Huh? All right, well, that's good. 
Holiness is the state of being holy. What does it mean to be holy? Well, as Christians, if we were to pick up our Bibles and we were to pick up a, a, a Greek New Testament and we were to read about holiness and being holy, we were to read the Peter passage, we'd see um, the Greek word hagios. And hagios is the Greek word for holy. And what it means as we read it in the Bible is being set apart or being dedicated or devoted to God. And so holiness in general meaning just means that it's someone who's dedicating or, or, or working on being set apart for God. It has that meaning. That's fine. But there is a special meaning in church history that's different. In church history, the holiness movement was not just about people being set apart or being dedicated or devoted to God. That's what all Christians should be. The holiness movement refers to this idea that there is a first state of blessing or grace with God where you get saved. But there is a second state of blessing or a second state of grace, a second work of God in your life where you become sinless. There were a couple of murmurs out there. Yeah, that's what it means. Sinless. There is a second achievement, if you will. There's, you know, some characterize that as you can be a basic Christian or you can be a super Christian. Uh, the holiness movement would not like that characterization. But the idea is, and, and, and this idea traces its roots to John Wesley, who we spent so much time studying. Um, I brought with me this morning uh, volume 11 in my series of the works of John Wesley. Okay? Volume 11 contains his book that he put out entitled Christian Perfection. And I want to share with you um, uh, an appendix that he had. He attached to the back of the book an appendix entitled, well, let me show it to you. Um, all right, focused. Here it is. Let's get it big enough for us to read. Brief Thoughts on Christian Perfection. Can you all see that okay? Okay. This is, uh, these are the words of John Wesley. Some thoughts occurred to my mind this morning concerning Christian perfection. And the manner and time of receiving it. Which I believe may be useful to set down. First, by perfection. I mean the humble... Gentle, patient love of God, love of our neighbor, ruling our tempers, ruling our words, and ruling our actions. I don't include an impossibility of falling from it, okay? And I don't contend for the term sinless, although I don't object against it. Now, that's what he means by perfection. Let's look to the manner, as to the manner. He says, I believe this perfection is always wrought in the soul by a simple act of faith, consequently in an instant. But I believe a gradual work both preceding and following that instant. Here's what he means. I think that in an instant you get this state of perfection. That doesn't mean gradually beforehand you're not working getting better and better. And it doesn't mean that there's not gradual work after it. But there is some instant where you receive this state. 
Now, when is that? As to the time. I believe this instant generally is the instant of death. The moment before the soul leaves the body. But I believe it may be 10, 20, or 40 years before. I believe it's usually many years after justification. That means after you're saved. I believe it's usually many years after you're saved. But it may be within five years or five months after you're saved. I know of no conclusive argument to the contrary. Now, Wesley, bless his heart, (laughs) wrote that... After he evidently had had his own experience of whatever he had had, but he was musing that morning and decided it might be profitable to write it down, and so wrote it, write it down, he did. Be careful what you write down. (laughs) From Wesley, this idea that a Christian can reach a state of perfection in attitude and action... And i got to be honest with you. I know a lot of people. I know a lot of holy people. One of my best friends of my entire lifetime is Louis Miori. He's a pastor at our church. He isn't any more sinless than the man in the moon. (laughs) I have seen this fella in all sorts of circumstances. I'll be the first to admit he's, he's about as close as anybody I know, but he's still so far away. You don't put him in the same sentence, okay? Now, Wesley, Wesley has this view. Wesley passes it on to a fellow named Thomas Webb. We put Thomas Webb up there. Interesting looking guy, isn't he? Because it's Veterans Day and he was a soldier. He was a big-time soldier for the the King of England uh, who actually, during the American Revolution, he came back over here to do mission work and got arrested for uh, being a spy, a British spy. And uh, uh, George Washington finally decided to cut him some slack himself and and, uh, did a prisoner swap, and and, uh, Thomas Webb went back to England. But before that time, before the Revolution started, Thomas Webb was over here, and he was preaching. As, as a protege and a student, if you will, of, of Methodism, of Wesley and, and, uh, and others. And here's what he had to say in his sermon in New York City. He says, salvation's not enough. You must receive the Holy Ghost. You must be sanctified. That means made holy. You're only Christians in part. I can feel your spirits hanging around me like a bunch of dead meat. (laughs) Soldier talk. Um, Same idea, you see it? You can be a saved Christian, but you got to get this extra blessing. You need to get sanctified. You need to get made holy. Now, this is the end of the 1700s. We roll into the 1800s, and we've got Charles Finney. Anybody ever heard of Charles Finney? You go on Amazon.com, you can buy dozens of books by or about Charles Finney. 
But he'll write books on Christian perfection. He'll write, he wrote books on, on life with the Holy Spirit. He wrote books on, on revival in the church. He wrote books on, and gave sermons on all sorts of subjects. A very prolific author. I've quoted him some in the paper. But uh, what Charles Finney did, Charles Finney was in New York, by and large, was his place of ministry. And he was part of this uh, second great awakening and so up in New York, he's up there preaching and, and, and he's actually calling people to holiness. But Charles Finney believes this. Uh, 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 in fact, Charles Finney in one of his lessons says, I was just reading Wesley on Christian perfection. And with the background of what we just read together, Finney delivers a sermon. And in that sermon, he says, Perfection, by perfection, let me define it. I mean perfect obedience to God's law. Perfect love to God. Perfect love to a neighbor. Morally, just as perfect as God. This is attainable for a Christian. And it's the Christian's duty to attain it. I don't know if this shocks you. This shocks me. Because it violates everything I've experienced in my life. If you want to be in a Sunday school class with a teacher who understands and has achieved a perfect, sinless life, let me know when you find it. Because I'll quit teaching and go there. And celebrate the second coming of Jesus. I am very nervous. Even though I have some wonderfully brothers and sisters that I fully respect. Their ministry and what they do. I will and I have argued vociferously until we just both get exhausted. That they're not sinless. They haven't reached a point. When Paul writes in Romans that we're saved, there's a, an, an, an unusual Greek passage in, in Romans 1 where he talks about uh, uh, a righteousness that's from faith, that's by faith from first to last. Okay? From first to last. And in the Greek concept, what that means is you're saved by faith at the start of your Christian walk, but it's what saves you at the end. You don't transition over at any point and become good enough. You're saved by faith. I'm saved by faith from first to last, from beginning to end. And that's the way it is. This guy didn't see it, though. He says, Finney goes further and says, the permanent sanctification, that's this, this state of sinlessness, the permanent sanctification comes about through the, quote, baptism of the Holy Spirit. And here's what he was teaching. That you get saved... You, by your faith and trust in God and Jesus. But then comes a time where through perfect obedience, you get a baptism of the Holy Spirit that is a, a second touch of God. Yeah, I'm going to readily tell you all, I don't, I, I, I don't believe that the way he teaches it. Okay, um, uh, And I'm going to talk to you about that more next week. That's not as much in this week's lesson, but Steve Taylor was reading the lesson and said, hey, you didn't put in there how you think about this, and people may want to know, 
You know, don't, you know, unless you plan on endorsing it, you ought to say something. I'm not endorsing it. Okay. But there, 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 we're going to look at those scriptures next week. Next week, we're going to take a little extra time and not just deal with history, but we're going to really deal with some um, uh, scripture and some, some views of this because I think it's an important issue. This happens at a time where revival starts sweeping America. It's the second great awakening. And I'd like to put America's morality on a chart if I could. I don't know that this works, but we're going to try it. America's morality with Finney and others kicks up pretty good. I mean, you got a fellow who's talking and preaching about Christian perfection, and while nobody, in my opinion, ultimately achieves it, if they're trying to, they are kicking the bar up a few notches, you know? And so it's, 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 it's picking up the ball game and it's having a good effect. But, and, and it's having a good effect on America. God's working through this theology for the good of our country. In a lot of ways. It is out of this. Christian drive for moral goodness. That there is a huge avalanche. Toward the abolition of slavery. There's a wonderful way that God worked through this. And lest I misconstrue anybody. When I say i am got sin. I'll also tell you, my theology is not perfect either. So I'm not sitting here trying to trump these people and say, gee, I wish Finney knew what I know now. I don't mean it that way at all. God works in spite of our errors in theology. Mine, his, yours, all of ours. God's not bound by our limitations. Thank God. So there is a great moral push in America because of the preaching and the camp meetings of Finney and others. This is the same time we've been covering with the Restoration Movement. Alexander Campbell and that crew, they're working hard morality push in the south and in the, the mid, middle uh, uh, Tennessee area. You've got up north this big morality push coming from Finney and others. And uh, then the Civil War comes in. And the Civil War comes in, and to me that's kind of not a, a moral high ground for half of our country um uh, the civil war itself is is a, a a very difficult time for our country but i will tell you without any equivocation that after the civil war was a moral low point for the country because unlike our veterans today the veterans from the civil war returned and they kept a battlefield bless you mentality that they took into business, they took into government, a battlefield mentality that was very different, a battlefield ethic that's very different than what we have today. And business and government and corruption and abuse were at an all-time high. Mistreatment of people. You could take the sermon that Dr. Fleming preached today, the sermon he preached last week on children and parents, and the sermon he preached the week before on marriage. If you could bottle those three sermons and transport them back in time and infuse them into the minds and hearts of America, uh, our history would be totally different. But after the Civil War was a very low point in American morality, and it's into this time period that the Methodist church rides to the rescue. 
The Methodist church in this time period says, you know, we need a camp meeting again. Remember how back in the old days when we were kids, we'd have those camp meetings and the Spirit of God would come down and everybody would really uh, address their holiness. And really, you know, we need a camp meeting again. And so a group of Methodists got together and decided it needed to be broader than the Methodist church. They were going to get Baptists. They were going to get anybody that wanted to participate to participate. But they were going to set a national camp meeting for the promotion of holiness for a week in July 1867. It was going to be in Vineland, New Jersey. Yes, the dandelion capital of the world. It is. You can look it up on the internet. Dandelion. That, this is happening two years before in Vineland, New Jersey. Dr. T.B. Welch invents Welch's grape juice. So this is just like a mecca for things happening back then. <laughs> the camp meeting comes and people descend from everywhere and there is a big constant message that we've got to get serious about our faith. We've got to live holy lives. We've got to be different people than we are. And our neighbors need to be different. And this is back when people didn't really take big vacations. This is back when people didn't have TV. They didn't have the radio. They didn't have the things that we, they didn't even have microwave ovens. Girl on the front row of 16, she goes, what? How did they eat? Um, and her mother elbowed her and said, I don't just microwave. No, I, that did not happen down here. Um, the, uh, 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 but yeah, it was a complete... So, so you get a camp meeting. This is like vacation, family time, entertainment, all rolled into one. Get in the covered wagon and head on out. And spend the week and have good fun and fellowship and message and everything else. So the camp meeting comes and it's so good that they set up a national camp meeting association for the promotion of holiness. Saying this association will spread these camp meetings everywhere. We'll replan another one here next year and let's plan a whole bunch more. That group, the National Camp Meeting Association for the Promotion of Holiness is still around today. It's changed its name a couple of times. Today, it's called the Christian Holiness Partnership. But it's the same organization. It's just gone down. Now, there are members of this organization that have at this point, a number of denominations have come out of the movement itself, and a number of groups have come out, and those groups are a part of the Christian Holiness Partnership, I've pulled a few you may be familiar with. Salvation Army. General Booth started it over in England, but it comes over here as an extension over here and becomes part of the holiness movement. Not just the Salvation Army, the Wesleyan Church. After John Wesley. The Church of the Nazarene. Which is where we go from here. This holiness camp meeting starts and, and they're continuing to be held around the United States. And there is a, a call, a cry to the churches for Christians to get serious about their holiness. But it's done within the framework that you and I, supposedly, can achieve a state of sinless perfection. Where God will come down in His Spirit and bless us with an ability to live without sin. And that's what people should be striving for, and that's what they should be seeking. 
and that's what was being taught. And this uh, teaching caused ultimately a fracturing, a breaking off from the Methodist church. Because the mainline Methodist church said, no, that's not our doctrine. And so, for example, in Los Angeles, there was a fellow named Phineas Brissy, who was a Methodist minister, who severed off from the Methodist church with one of his key members, a fellow named Dr. J.P. Widney. And they started the first church of the Nazarene in Los Angeles. This is a picture of Phineas Brissy. This is a bust of J.P. Widney that you'll find at the University of Southern California, USC. Yeah, singing the USC fight song. That's uh, okay. Texas Tech's in mourning today. Oh, for a defense. Um, the uh, uh, gentleman, Dr. J.P. Widney, was president of USC for a, a good time period, still honored. He started the med school at USC as well. And so uh, uh, these gentlemen got together and, and built what has become one of the largest churches of the Nazarene in the United States. Today, the Church of the Nazarene numbers over 1.6 million members worldwide in over 18,000 churches, but, uh, including James Dobson. But this is where it started. Now, I want to contrast with us here something. I want to contrast what's going on in the holiness movement, which was this idea that we can perfect the person. God can perfect the person. The Christian can be made perfect through the work of God and His Spirit. That's going on on an individual basis. At the same time, there's another movement going on in America called the social gospel movement. Have you ever heard of the social gospel? Some of you have. The social gospel movement is the same principle, but instead of saying we can make the person perfect, the social gospel says we can make the society perfect. Let's make the United States of America a perfect place. Let's take the Christian faith and apply it to or the Christian uh, faith or practice and because it wasn't always the faith and apply it to our country and let's change the morality of america as it operates as a nation not simply the morality of an individual social gospel as a buzzword may not have a good taste in your mouth because you and i are in an evangelical church and social gospel gets a bad rap sometimes with evangelicals mainly i think because of a guy named Walter Rauschenbusch from uh, Rochester, New York, of all places, uh, uh, was a Baptist minister for a while, but reached a point where he decided that the Bible was not only not inerrant, that the Bible had just tons of errors and problems, um, reached a point where he decided that the historical Jesus did not really come to die for our sins. Rather, the historical Jesus came to show us a better way, a way of love. And then went on further to say that, that the kingdom of God is not something that's an eternity where we're all to go spend eternity. But rather, the kingdom of God is an idea that we need to make our society more godly. Now you see why social gospel has kind of a bad rap with evangelicals because that 
flies in the face of everything we hold sacred and orthodox in terms of salvation. But having said that, I'll go the bold step and say God still works in the midst of not only believers, but even heretics. God works in the midst of atheism. God's not locked out of the world where atheists reign. They're putty in his hand for his purposes. I have a friend growing up who emailed me recently, said, let's get together. We haven't spent any time together in a long, long time. Rick emailed me, and I remember Rick when I was a junior in high school. We were talking about what it was going to be like to die and whether or not we might be alive when the Lord Jesus returns. Rick looked at me and he said, I want to be alive when he comes back. And I said, yeah, it'd be kind of cool. Of course, I'm thinking, then I'm not separated from my family by death. That wasn't Rick's idea at all. Rick said, it'd be so cool be standing next to an atheist when the Lord Jesus comes back. <laughs> so, um, I, I'm not sure cool's the word I'd use, but it would definitely be an expression to see on their face. Um, now, you don't believe in him? Um, but he's coming with clouds and the angels and glory. Um, anyway, it was not simply unbelieving ex-Orthodox Christians who are now heretics who prompted the social gospel. Uh, the Presbyterian Church at the time was very conservative. Six great ends of the church they published in 1910. Number one was to proclaim the gospel for salvation of humankind. That's, that's staunch in the middle of the gospel. That's Jesus Christ came and died for sinners and let's tell sinners so they can be saved and spend eternity with God. But end number five of the six, or six great ends was to promote social righteousness. It was the same concept. Believers were being stirred to action within society. And it's interesting the effects this had. The holiness movement, you can go back, i got tons of sermons if you all ever want to borrow them. Tons of sermons out of the holiness movement. And they were preaching against booze. They were preaching against gambling. They were preaching against lipstick, dancing, ball games. See, everybody misses it somewhere. This is also apparent that Texas Tech University was not yet sporting a football team at that point in time. <laughs> Booze, gambling, lipstick, dancing, ball games. These were issues. And I guess if that's your criteria of sin, then uh, yeah, we might do all right. At least us men who don't wear lipstick. <laughs> but that's a pretty superficial look at sin. Now, the perfect the society people, I've got some of those sermons too. And it's real interesting to read what they were saying, both the Christians and the, those that, that uh, uh, in my understanding, were not. They were saying, we've got to deal with slums. We've got to deal with child labor. We've got to deal with uh, uh, men having to work more than 12 hours a day without getting any type of overtime or pay. We've got to deal with public health. There's no provision for public health. And we've got immigrants and poor people who don't have access to public health. We've got to make ma- education mandatory or most kids will never get to go to school. And instead, their parents will work them to death. And so we need to make education mandatory and grow society that way. And one of my favorites is in a book called Sermons by Satan that I have. And it's written in this time period. And Satan stands up and he preaches these sermons to try and convince the Christians not to be Christians. And in one of the sermons, he says, hey, you businessmen out there, you know what you need to do? 
You need to get a monopoly. If you can get a monopoly and run everybody else out of business, then you can crank up your prices as high as you want and make all the money you want. You just first got to get the monopoly. And this is the idea is that that is a satanic approach. You know, we had uh, a lot of you have been in in prayer, and and I want to thank you for that. We've made some big steps towards resolving uh, the the Vioxx litigation this last week. And it's going to be a few more years before we know for certain how things fall out. But it's very interesting because there is a, a pot that will be set aside for attorney's fees out of this settlement. And I was in New Orleans meeting with all of the lawyers. There have already been over a thousand lawyers laying claim to those fees. And the interesting part about it is not just the way they lay claim to them, but the way they start jockeying for position on them. So, for example, one of the cases that we tried, and and, I mean, we tried it. I've stood up and argued in front of the jury, cross-examined every witness. We tried the case. I had a fella. I walked into a crowd of people, and there's this fella I don't know from Adam who's telling everybody about how he tried that case and won it. (laughs) I'm sitting there, and I just thought, bless your heart, you know? (laughs) And I could have, you know, how do I pass it up? and say, I would just love to meet you because I was... uh, lawyer who did the whole case and if you want it then I guess I need to say thank you (laughs) and meet you because you weren't there Um, but you know it's it's so interesting to me how how yeah and and where do lawyers get a bad name Um, it's so so interesting to me to see how money just changes changes people I mean, it's, it, they're truly it. I, I, why should I be shocked? Jesus said the love of money is the root of all evil. Money's not, but the love of it is. And, and it's just fascinating to me to watch people as they go for this. But these are the problems that were being confronted and being spoken against in the social gospel movement. Now, next week, I want to take the social gospel, not the social, I want to take the, the holiness movement and we're going to propel forward and see how out of it comes Pentecostalism and the modern charismatic movement. And I've planned it for one week. If I need to break it up into two, I will, because it's very important to me to share with you some, some theology behind this as well, not simply the history. So bear with me. I have three points for home for us. Point for home one, holiness. And here I'm talking about personal holiness, me, you, okay, each one of us. Why does it matter? Why? If we're saved by grace through faith, why does it matter what we do? Oh, I know it makes a difference because we're told it does, but why? I want to know why. If I've had success as a trial lawyer, I think part of it's because I was taught by a, a lawyer named Lisa Blue that people want the why question answered. Don't just tell them. Explain why. Don't just tell me that I'm supposed to be holy. I want to know why. Why? Why does Al Mendoza need to be holy? (laughs) Because Mary Nell said so. (laughs) No. Why? Why do each one of us need to be holy? Why does it really make a difference? Why does it make a difference if no one knows? Why does it make a difference if we're removed out of town? Why does it make a difference if we're 
really angry and have a reason to be unholy. Why does it make a difference? I got an answer for you. It's not the only answer, but it's the one I'm given this morning because I wrote the lesson. God says, says it in Leviticus, Peter quotes it in 1 Peter. says, be holy because, God answers the why question, I'm holy. Now I want you to think about this for a minute. Everybody in here was made in God's image. Everybody in here was made in the image of God. Every one of us. Okay? God made you in his image and he's holy. What are you supposed to be? What am I supposed to be? Holy. Why? Because when we're holy, we're walking consistent 